Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Silu, silu, which is, of course, Welsh for Achtung, Achtung. Uh, please, I beg and plead forgiveness from Welsh speakers for my ignorance. Uh, the translation comes from listener Andy Pritchard. Thanks, Andy. He got in touch with us this week with a brilliant account of his great uncle's experiences on HMS Bulldog. More of that a little later. But welcome, one and all, to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Um, I hope you enjoyed my reading of The Cauldron. The last chapter was released on Easter Sunday. You can catch up anytime wherever you get your podcast. They got out of Oosterbeek. We're still in lockdown. <laughs> There's no escape. There is no escape. There isn't even a Rhine to swim in desperate oh, moments. Oh, it's 4 in Wiltshire. Oh, gosh. Uh, I'm now deep into my next reading, Dennis Barnum's One Man's Window, which is about Dennis's time as a Spitfire pilot in Malta. And it is absolutely... Sensational. And the thing is, is when we talked about putting this book together, James kept going, you're going to love it. It's absolutely sensational. And it is. It's and the most extraordinary book. Uh, yeah, I, so I was worried I'd slightly overcooked it, to be honest. Well, I thought, I'm, I'm sort of thinking, you know, he's oversold this. There's no way it's that good. Oh, here we go. And it is, there's, when he takes two other guys up, because they've only got three serviceable Spitfires, and up they go, and there's like... 50, 50 JU-88s and hundreds. And, and he talks about the stack of the stack of 109s in, you know, the, the, the Germans fly, flying in their finger four, but it goes from from a thousand feet to 30,000 feet. And they're all watching each other. The finger fours are all treating each other as finger fours and what, and it's spread out like a concertina. And there's no, there's once, once the, if you attack the guys at the bottom, the guys at the top will get you like, and there's no point in attack. It's just amazing. It's an amazing book. I'll tell you one of the things that I loved about it as well was that, that a lot of those memoirs, particularly the ones that came just out, um, out just after the war, they're all a bit sort of, well, that was a little bit hairy. You know, I, I don't mind admitting I was a teeny bit scared at that point. You know, and it's also uncut. And what he conveys really, really well is, is I just think when I, reading that, I think, yeah, I'd be feeling the same way. You really sense the kind of the raw fear, the kind of, you know, he has all these thoughts, doesn't he, about, you know, what what he's going to be reduced to, his body when he's hit or burned or whatever, all of which are incredibly kind of, you know, as you imagine someone There's a in really, situation would be. There's a really, really great bit where he writes about how um, the plane is metal and even if the plane is blown up or destroyed or crashes, it will still be identifiably metal. But if he is smashed to pulp or burned or charred or destroyed and and people will either not be able to recognise that he was ever even human or will make smart remarks. So smart jokes, he says, over my over what remains of my dead body. And he's talking about that and you think, God, this is really good. And the second chapter, when he's on his way to Malta, there is a long there's a he he does a long thing about fear and how he copes with fear and 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 seeing fear in others because there's a there's some sortie he's supposed to go on and he, and and he's drawn not to fly and so he's and he's in the room with everyone who's about to go flying and he thinks 
Christ, is this what I'm like? Oh, my God. You know, and can yeah. feel the fear in the room and then spot someone who is lost in the fear and goes and talks to them and tries to talk about it. It's, it is a really great book. And um, and aside from that, the, dis- the, the descriptions of flying and the... Um, and fighting in the air are amazing, and um, you, I was worried. I was, was worried you'd oversold it to me, but it's it's as good as you said it was. <laughs> he also gets across very well the heat, doesn't he, and the dust and the flies and the discomfort and the and the malted dog, which is kind of dysentery, effectively. Yeah, 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 and, and all that, and all that just comes across. You know, you just you realise that. I mean, there's that great line about that from that Battle of Britain pilot who comes over to Malta and goes, "God, you know." Malta makes the Battle of Britain look like child's play compared with this. And, and, and you sort of get that with this book. I, I think he gets it so vividly. But he t- Amazing. He, well, I'm, he, I'm so glad you enjoyed it. I mean, it. he talks about how they can't, that, that they've got to develop tactics, but they can't train. There's no, because every time they go up, they've got to go up to meet a, a raid. And they can't, so they can't practice any. So they, they sit around and talk about it. And then he's thinking, well, the people who survived are the experienced pilots. And there's a whole lot of pilots who have no experience. And, the, and yeah. they're going to need to learn how to lead. So he, he takes, when they takes the three Spitfires, he gets someone else to lead. Because, because they're going to have to at some point if he's shot mm. down. I mean, it's such, it, it's such a, it's such a it, uh, it really is great. It's a, it's a nail biter. I mean, obviously, 18 chapters of it, he wrote the book. You know he's going to get through unscathed, or if scathed, recoverably scathed. I mean, that first sort he goes on when he's, watch, I won't, well, he gets shot down. I mean, the thing is, you can, you can go, you can deliver all the spoilers you want with this book, but it remains amazing. So, um, an excellent choice. Thank you, James. Well, it's a bit like, um, it's a bit like watching the, uh, the Cricket World Cup final yesterday live again, as live. <laughs> and you're just thinking, they can't do it. Yes, 15 this is or impossible. four, it can't be done. <laughs> so, you know, I think that the, the spoiler alert doesn't really spoil it at all. Ben Stokes and the Spitfire, um, basically, that's what this book is. Right, so, but talking of finishing books, he's only gone and done it, ladies and gentlemen, friends of the independent <laughs> company. James Holland is here, ladies and gentlemen, fresh from his metaphorical journey through Sicily. You finished, right? Yeah, yeah, oh my God. It was just, Final it full was stop? Epic. Friday was a massive day. It was massive. Um, but yeah, I got there. I got there on time. So I'll hand it in tomorrow, having read through it um, over the weekend. And uh, one of the one of the key things I've got out of this is is this sort of... And actually, we should definitely try and put this up on the independent company as a as a discussion point. Is why were the allies, you know, were the allies too slow? Is basically the long short of it. And one of the things you realise is actually it's it's not really to do with a lack of tactical chutzpah. It's just because they're so mechanised. And when you're very very mechanised, moving quickly in advance is really difficult, unless you happen to be in the Russian steppes. Because you simply don't have the space. And and, and you realise that, that all the arguments about, oh, well, 30 core are being too slow uh, again, um, you know, going up through Sicily, for example, on this occasion, not going up towards towards Nijmegen, um, it's because there's only certain amount of roads and you need those roads. They are your, your arteries. They're your, your axes for going northwards or west or wherever you're trying to get to. And there's only so much traffic you can fit on that. And there's this just amazing diary of this gunner, who's the second in command of, I think it's the 17th Field Artillery Regiment. And just the problems of trying to deploy your guns, let alone get them from A to B. So you stagger up this hairpin bend, you go up, 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 up to the top of Chenteripe. You then 
struggling all morning to try and give the fire support that's required because you just can't deploy anywhere. You can't deploy anywhere that's properly camouflaged, gives you safety, or you just physically can't get off the road. Because it's not just a 25 pounder you've got to sort out. It's also the limber with the ammunition in it and the quad that, that tows it. I mean, you know, a 25 pounder in motion is quite a big old bit of kit. Then you've got to get through Chenteripe, which is incredibly narrow. So there's only one road round the edge of town that will actually cope with the size. Then you've got to get down. And of course, as the Germans retreated, they blown bits of road up. So you then got to get. You can just see how there's the biggest log jam ever. And you're in plain view of the Germans on the next hill. So you can see why this whole thing starts to grind down. And in fact, I mean, I've been to Sissy, as you know, a number, a number of times. And, and we're going to be going there soon now, as soon as the, the restrictions lift and go and, and film out there. But when you're standing on Azoro or on Ajira or Chenteripe or at Troina, and you just look at the next hill and the next hill and the next hill, and you know you've got to take one after the other, conquering that island in 38 days, you just go... Do you know what? That is a bloody good effort. And I, you cannot understand how anyone could possibly complain. Because after all, the Germans it. never conquered Sicily, did they? They just occupied it. They, they never had, to, they right. never had to, to grind through it and winkle, winkle allies out. So, so actually saying, slow compared to what? If the, you know, it's like, it's like, well, it's like when people talk about Normandy and they say, well, the Allies, the, the Allies should have been more like the Germans in 1940 and be more blitzkriegy. And you think, well, you're comparing apples with monkey wrenches, you know, not even apples and oranges, right? Because, because after all, the Germans didn't, the Germans don't, con they conduct a static defence in Normandy, not a fluid one that's, a, that's the Blitzkriegy defence. The Germans aren't like the Germans in 1940 either. So you're, you're holding the Allies to like a, like a weird standard if you do that, you know. And of course, the Germans never had to, never conquered, never had to grind their way through Normandy either. They, no. they simply, they, they drove there because the French army was somewhere else. You know, look, and, and, right. and, and, and so on. You know, you know what I mean? So, so often these comparisons, you, you, you have to come down to compared to what? And, and, and you're, when you said compared to the steps, that's the, that's the right comparison compared to the Red Army because, because it's actually about how you beat the Germans. It's not about whether you're quick or slow compared to the Germans. It's about how you beat the Germans tactically right. in the in in the environment you find yourselves fighting them in and so many of the places the right. germans ended up defending they never they never had to militarily seize did they They'd... right no 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 it's a really good point and, and the point about 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 sicily and particularly that northeast bit the central and northeast bit is it just all the aces are with the defenders it just completely lends itself to that. And of course, because the northeast tip of Sicily tapers, you can pull back in phases and pull guys out of the line and get them across the Straits of Messina while still, because you don't need very many men. And the, and the allies coming towards you can't just chuck lots of manpower and machinery at it because there isn't the space. There just isn't the space to manoeuvre. And that's the problem. And you see this with the, particularly with the Americans on the North Coast Road. So that they're just. They're, they're tight, you know, they're, they're, what they do is move very fast in all their vehicles and trucks and half tracks and tanks and all the rest of it. What they suddenly can't do is do any of that because they're on a coastal road which has got lots of hairpins and tunnels and have blown bits because as the Germans retreat, they just blow everything up. They blow every bridge up, they blow up bits of roads, they put rocks in front of the tunnels. And it's just incredibly frustrating. And this highly mechanised army have to resort to using mules. I mean, again, you know, the fact that they're doing this in a matter of weeks 
you know, he's really, really impressive. And particularly for, for armies which have never done this before. You know, Britain might have been at war since 1939, but it's never fought in this kind of terrain, in these kind of circumstances, where you are being supplied by supply chains which are coming over the water. That's just never happened before. Uh, and they're doing it for the first time. Well, since Portugal, I mean, since, por- since, penin- since the Peninsula War. It's the first time they've done it since the Peninsula War on a right. large scale. So, you know, there is no muscle memory for this. Uh, and, the, and, the no. la- and the last time there was an attempt to supply by, ocean, by sea for, for this kind of front is Gallipoli. And, uh, right. and, and we all know how, uh, how well uh, that happened. And everyone's very out. aware of what happened there. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm yeah, very yeah. glad I got it. And I, and, I feel, and I feel it's, you know, I mean, Carlo Deste's book, he's really good. And, and there's another really good book guy called, uh, a pair of people, an American called Mitchum and a, and a German called Stauffenberg, obviously. And um, and, and their little account of the, the Battle of Sicily, they're also very good. But they both go into this kind of Alexander Lack grip, Monty was a total asshole. Everyone was really slow. They made catastrophic errors. The fact that they got, you know, the Germans got away. You know, I was talking to Steve Prince the other day about this. He's the head of the Naval Historical Branch, and he's, um, uh, you know, he's a, he's a brilliant on all this stuff. And he just said, you know, you're talking about thirty nine thousand Germans escaping from from Sicily, of which twenty five thousand are the guys that actually went through on the Operation Lair Gang, which is the main evacuation bit other so the other 15 are are people that have gone earlier than that because they're ill or their casualties or their staff officers or whatever you know you know so 25,000 out of four and a half divisions I mean that's not enough to make two divisions Uh, and and the idea that that is going to make or break the next phase of the campaign in Italy is just nonsense but but basically don't start at the bottom it's the, what it comes down to with Italy, which I really, you know, when it comes to it, that's the, the if that's the pithiest single thing, don't start, ne- you know, next time you're invading Italy, don't start at the bottom. And you think, well, yeah, yeah. it's quite hard to argue yeah, with that. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll try and get a bit more shipping in beforehand. Yeah, well, yeah, of course. Right. OK, now let's start with, um, uh, and when's that at? When's that in all good bookshops, as they used to say? Uh, 3rd of September, 1939. And you'll be pleased to know that Monty comes out of it really pretty well. Oh, good. Excellent. 3rd of September. And I, think he, I, think he, I think he did really well. This, I think he did well in it. At this rate, I'll be doing my audio. I, I can't really fault him. I'll be doing the audio book here in my underpants like I've done everything else. There's an image for you, me reading about <laughs> me reading about uh, reading Zeno's novel in my kex in my office. However, Patton gets a slightly more mixed press. Oh, James. <laughs> I can't wait to read this book. I've right. Got to say. right, now let's start with Andy Pritchard's email. He sent us the memories of his great uncle, John Williams which were jotted down before he passed away. John was a radio artificer on HMS Bulldog. What's a radio artificer, James? Um it's just it's just a, a signals man. It's 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 a artificer is a is a it's like a senior NCO. Right, okay. Okay. That's a naval title, isn't it? Okay. Right, let's hear yeah, his story. Yeah. We were on one of our trips to take a convoy to America. We only went as far as Iceland before being released by Canadian and UK US escorts and had taken over the convoy back to the UK. At that time, the U-boats were hunting in packs of about six. One escort, HMS Albrezia, made contact with the U-boat and dropped a pattern of depth charges, bringing the sub to the surface. We had made our way to the rear of the convoy to assist Albrezia, but when the sub surfaced, the crew made for their forward gun. The signalman on the bridge, armed with a stripped Lewis gun, immediately opened fire and stopped that happening. The crew then came around the conning tower with their hands up, but Frankie Upex kept firing until the captain stopped him. 
Orbrizia then picked up the survivors and later we took the U-110 in tow and the survivors were transferred to Bulldog. Our engineer officer went aboard the U-boat to make sure it was safe to board before sending a boarding party in our whaler, which included Alan Long, one of my telegraphists, to take over the sub. When the whaler returned to Bulldog, Alan brought what we thought was a typewriter to the WT office. The confidential books and other stuff were taken to the captain's cabin. When things had settled down to the towing, Alan and I had a look at the typewriter and seeing the voltage marked was 110 volts, the same as the ship supply, we plugged it in. When we pressed the keys on the keyboard, German letters were lit up on the top of the machine. The sub stayed afloat on tow for a couple of days and then started to sink. So the boarding party returned and when it became too dangerous to keep in tow, the tow was cut and she sank. It was intended that we towed v, uh, U110 to Scapa Flow, but we arrived there without the sub and the intelligence officers came aboard to question both the boarding party and the survivors. When they heard about our typewriter, we got a good roasting because the machine was the Enigma coding machine and Alan Long <laughs> had taken the wheels and all the information off U110, so it was a real cache. Wow. Alan eventually got the DSM for his efforts, but sadly was lost on Avenger when she went down in the med. Alan was our son David's godfather, and our next son, Alan, was named after him. Blimey. Yeah, that's a great story. Well, Bulldog's a legend. I mean, you know, it's a legendary destroyer doing it. You know, it's doing it's the cruel sea stuff. I mean, there it is. And actually, U110, that's Lemp. And Lemp was the guy who I think shot down, uh, who sank the Athenia on day one of the war. Wow. Yeah. I think that's what it was. I was struggling to remember that last time we were talking about it. But I think it, I think Lemp, Lemp was that. Yeah, yeah. it's a really, really famous incident. May 1941, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Historic, historic moment there. But, but to actually got their hands on an enigma. Yeah, absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. And it's one of those things, that, you know, I've always argued that, the, the, that we got to a stage where we weren't going to lose the Battle of the Atlantic by May 1941. Um, and that is one of the key moments but did- for me. For me, but did, that, no, that did an enigma that. not have a stick of dynamite in that the, that the captain was obliged to detonate if he was found in this situation? I mean, this is this is quite interesting, isn't it? Is that you know that 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 I mean, you think if they've got time to surrender the U-boat to, to, to they surface, they surrender the U-boat. Surely someone's taken taken a sledgehammer to the to the enigma in that you know. I mean, this is pretty slack, isn't it? Of the Kriegsmarine, they're not doing they're not doing the job properly. I mean, I just, I, I, yeah, I don't know the answer for that. I, I mean, you know, cock-ups happen. Well, because Eure- Eureka, as as the listeners of the Xeno know, Eureka had an explosive in it so that you could destroy it so it wouldn't fall into enemy hands um, because it was regarded as, you know, the most incredibly super secret piece of equipment. And yet, the, I, I mean, I mean, one of the things is the Enigmas are everywhere. The Enigmas like a like a standard piece of kit so they're absolutely everywhere so you're gonna f- you're gonna find one eventually aren't you it's whether you can crack yeah. crack the damn thing of, of of course is the is the thing the germans didn't consider um, but you but i'm just i'm just intrigued by this you know you'd, you'd surely you'd take a sledgehammer tool, or you'd you'd tear out and you'd lob it in the sea i mean it's not like you're short of opportunities to get rid of the bloody thing yeah, the other thing about enigma machines is is the fact that the germans never understood that we'd crack the code which I find absolutely amazing as well. And, you know, that was because, you know, every time Enigma picked up something, you'd then send over a plane yeah. to look like it was a, you know. And there was quite a lot of times where we didn't use our knowledge of Enigma decrypts because it might give the game away. But even so, you would have thought it wouldn't take a kind of too many brains to go, do you know what, do you think, just bear with me on this one, do you think they might have cracked it? <laughs> All our U-boats have been sunk. Oh, and they were all they were all communicating the same way with each other. <laughs> but this is impossible. 
Yeah. Oh, I've just looked up 110. No, I was wrong about that. That wasn't the one that sunk the Athenia. I was talking absolute nonsense. Oh, no. Oh, dear. Well, uh, that's a great yeah. story to start. Lemp was. Lemp was the commander. Right. Well, that's a, that a great it. story to start that the show. That was the connection. Even though you, you wrong-footed um, James there, Andy. Well done. Nice work. Now, for those of you who don't know, we started a members club last week called The Independent Company, and I'm delighted to say we've got more than 400 volunteers already. So it, eventually we'll, we're going to have to change from being a company to a battalion. Um, that's what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to... Up- yeah, yeah what, 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 is that once we get past 845? Yeah, once we're past 845, we become the independent b- battalion. After that, we aim at brigade. Then uh, then we go division. <laughs> then army. Army group. Um, and then we go to 30 core. <laughs> Well, right. Well, <laughs> but but thanks for everyone. Thanks for everyone for, for coming in on board on that. It was really exciting. Um, last week, we debated a different issue each day. We produced a live stream on Thursday night. Um, and uh, despite some slight comms difficulties, congratulations to everyone who bore with us. And I live blog and I live blogged where Eagles Dare last night. Um, if any of you are feeling the effects of that, uh, God bless you all. Um, there'll be another live stream on Thursday, and it may even start on time this week at 8.30 p.m. Um, now, we asked our volunteers, independent company members, what their favourite Second World War gizmo was, and here's a selection of your answers. Alexander Lyons suggested garlic-infused chocolate so SOE agents would smell like the locals. <laughs> <laughs> And Samuel Langley Clifford said the bouncing bomb was kind of awesome. It was kind of awesome. I'll give you that. Yeah, neat. Um, uh, Mike Boland suggested the toy clacker that the airborne used to identify um, each other during the during D-Day. By the way, I am... Um, no, I, no, definitely not. That's the most annoying thing ever. Don't ever buy that for a child. Where's mine? I've got one on the desk here somewhere. <laughs> no, don't, don't. Find, ah. oh, damn, I can't find it. Otherwise, we'd, otherwise we'd be, in, <laughs> oh, that's a we'd be straight into clicker hell now. Um, I'm, funnily enough, at the weekend... Um, <laughs> I persuaded um, my daughter Willow that she really wanted to watch uh, Band of Brothers um, because she's a big Friends fan. And I go, it's got David Schwimmer in it. You're going to love it. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and so um, we are watching Band of Brothers. And um, uh, you know what? And? It is remarkable how it hasn't dated uh, as a piece of television. It's so good, isn't it? And it, it is so, so good. good. Uh, just the, the, But the main thing you take away from it is the absolute horror the relentless horror and just chance um, of of uh, fighting, of of you know when infantry close with each other or infantry close on uh, armor or whatever, it's just absolutely terrifying. The whole thing and the yeah. random the randomness of it and that because in the second episode where they assault that um, gun position. And they, you know, you look, you run round the corner, and there's two Germans setting up, and you have to kill them because they, you know, like I mean, it's just the, the 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 sort of sheer speed of those scenes is absolutely brilliant. Done. Anyway, our ne- what's the ne- what's the next um, gizmo, James? Sorry to digress. Uh, yes. So this is um, Dave, David Howard Carr wrote Miss Schilling's orifice got to be it fixed the Merlin carburetor. What's that? Um, because it's okay. So it the problem is, is that what happens is is when you vert, the float goes up, and that. Bonk, off the, cuts off uh, the fuel. Things. So you want to yeah. keep, you want to, so Michelin's orifice is make sure that the float doesn't go up when you have um, negative gravity and stays in place so the fuel stays because that was what gave the 109E against the Spitfire Mark oh, 1. Oh, here we go. Um, <laughs> He's slagging off the Spitfire Mark 1 <laughs> That <again>. crucial, <laughs> that um, crucial advantage um, when diving. Unbelievable. He's having another go at the Spitfire. <laughs> Ah, oh, amazing. Okay, um, we're going to take a break now um, while I berate James off air for having a go at the Spitfire yet again. It's almost as though he doesn't like the aeroplane one bit. Um, we'll see you in a tick. <laughs> 
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Um, uh, we were, well, we'd asked for favourite gizmos from the Second World War and excellent answers, but the answer is, is of course, the correct answer is, of course, the Piat. Um, <laughs> uh, Britain's um, unique and quite excellent. Preeminent gizmo. Preeminent gizmo. I mean, a spigot mortar <laughs> as an anti tank weapon. Yeah, get with the programme, people. You can keep your, uh, you know, cathode ray tubes, you know, mag cavity magnetrons and your. No, 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 no. Uh, the, I love the cavity. Of course you do. Of course you do. Um, <laughs> right. So we have some, we have um, a more, uh, well, one of the really wonderful things we've had since we set up the Patreon, and there's 400 of you on there now, the independent company um, uh, at, at Mast Strength Company. That's all our, all of our, that's including all the clerks and cooks and everyone, admin troops. It's, we're forming our own little box here. Um, uh, that you, um, uh, you've been, we've, We've asked you to send in your family stories, and one of the strands we have on the on the Patreon is people's family stories, um, because after all, the Second World War touched everybody. Basically, that the um, it involved everyone one way or another. Christopher Christopher Smith wrote in to say, "My stepmum's father served as a wireless operator, air gunner, in Number Nine B Squadron, first in Wellingtons, then in Lancasters. His aircraft was WSJ for Johnny Walker, bought and paid for by the whiskey company." Every crew member who finished a tour on her honour got a case of whiskey and a framed photo on the no of the nose art. I know he got the DFM. He said it was simply for surviving the Nuremberg raids and he took part in the Pinamunda and Tirpitz attacks. Johnny Walker finished the war with 106 sorties. Wow. I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's an awful lot of um, uh, sorties out of a length. Uh, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really that's, lucky, that's, lucky, that's lucky, lucky. What's normally expected? Isn't yeah, it? lucky, lucky, lucky to get through all that. Amazing. I mean, there were there were sort of sponsored um, 
aircraft, weren't they? And you got, you got sort of local drives and things and um, uh, to, to, to pay for aircraft. So it, and that kind of starts with Beaverbrook, doesn't it, in um, the Battle of Britain? Yeah. He does these, he does these sort of localised drives to get people to um, spend money on, on kit, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a Spitfire Fund and all that. And, and people sp- ended up, because they started off sponsoring um, individual planes and then they sponsored whole squadrons. So you have, you, you know, they're sort of named after towns and, and little... City of know, Exeter and Lincoln and all that sort of thing, yeah, yeah. All that kind of stuff, yeah. And it's a brilliant way. It just makes people feel involved. And uh, and obviously, I mean, the problem about the Spitfire Fund was they said, you know, if you get if you get £5,000 worth of scrap metal, that's a Spitfire. Obviously, it was kind of a bit more than that. But that wasn't the point. It was just a PR thing, really. It was really to kind of... Mobilise um, people. The Spitfire Fund originally. But later on, the contributions were, you know, not insignificant. I mean, you know, if you've got other countries funding your squadrons, what's not to like? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's... Good all, all, all that... It's 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 interesting because because it because yes it's PR but it's also the the, the right kind of PR. It's not just it's right. not it's not simply empty propaganda as a as a device. It's got it's got functionality to it as a as a mobilizing thing for the population, isn't it? It's not like yeah. um I'm trying to think of a I'm I'm trying to think of a sort of Goebbels example that would be analogous to it. I can't think of one. Well, the, so mo- the modern move- example, the modern example is Joss Butler kind of funding, you know, new kit for hospitals or footballers buying ventilators, isn't it? I mean, I guess. Exactly. Okay. Anyway, um, have we got, we've another, got story? another cracking story. Yeah, from Ian, Ian Strong. Yep. He says, I wanted to share the story of the only Bomber Command veteran I've ever met. Well, you know, everyone should meet one at some point in their life, that's for sure. And if you haven't, get on with it. Well, can I just, Um, before you read it, I'll tell you the one I met. I did the Cologne Comedy Festival when I first started out as a comic. Um, And this is like in 1992, and there were people going, oh, I can't believe this is a comedy festival in Germany. Germans don't have a sense of humour. And and you just think, oh, fucking stroll on with that. Anyway, the point is... (laughs) <laughs> when I flew back from there, we had they, they, it was a you know it was a European arts festival, so we had business class flights and everyone was very well looked after and we were all very well paid. It wasn't like here, and um, and I remember coming in, um, I was sat sat with with a German guy and a and an old British guy, right? And the old British guy goes, "Well, uh, I tell you, the, the, this site of the Thames Estuary is entirely reassuring." And we're like, what? He goes, well, of course, when one saw this glistening in the early morning light, one was delighted and one knew one had made it home at last. Right. And and he went Brilliant. on and he went on to then tell us that he'd been in Bomber Command. And, you know, what what an incredible sight the English coast was like, like how happy it made you. And then he said to the and then he said to the German guy next to him, you know, when we were sat either side of him, he said, and and thank goodness here we are flying together in peace and, you know, that I'm not having to do this, to make this journey the way I used to have to. And and we all toasted each other with a glass of champagne. <laughs> and, you know, it was a, a, a truly, a truly beautiful moment. I mean, that sounds like a sort of um, an anecdote that you'd make up to make a point, but that did actually happen to me. Anyway, back to How back to this story. Back to Ian Strong and his, yeah, his yeah, only yeah. experience of meeting a Bomber Command veteran. Flight Lieutenant Reg Barker was a Lancaster pilot from 635 Squadron at Downham Market. They were part of 8 Group and therefore Pathfinders. On the 26th of August 1944, they were sent to bomb Kiel. After bombing the intended target and heading home, an explosion and a vivid flash threw the aircraft onto its back 
They were hit by Schreger music and the tail section of the aircraft came away from the rest of the plane. Out of control, the Lank was heading to Earth and Red was pinned to the ceiling of the canopy due to centrifugal force. He struggled to get out. I'm not surprised. Uh, The next thing he was aware of, he was out of the plane and on his parachute. He'd never had a clue how he actually got out. He then saw out the rest of the war in Stalagluf 1. Two of his crew died. The rest all got home after the war. When I met him, I could have listened for hours. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Uh, absolutely amazing. And, you know, Schrager music was, was you know, an absolute bitch. There's no getting, getting around it. I mean, basically what the whole point of this was you'd have it on the uh, dorsal um, side of the, of the fuselage pointing upwards. You know, it could be a 30 millimetre cannon, not necessarily a 20 millimetre. And you'd go, you'd home in on the Lancaster, you'd go underneath it and then just fire and it would point well, upwards and go into the belly of it. They had a great, didn't they, that listened out for the H2S. Yes. Um, on the no- So the, 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 the classic <clears throat> image is the thing that looks like it's got like um, one of those uh, things for, you know, drying your washing on in your garden. Yep. On the front of your, on the front of the nose of the mesh right. bit, 110 or 210. And then a can of, and it's Schrager angled music. Jazz is, is what Schrager music means. And it would point point up at an angle, and they'd home in, come in under the lank, which has no which has no um, belly gun, no protection at all, no protection at all, and and apparently for quite a while the RAF bomber commander had simply no idea what was taking these planes out because of course they were hit <clears throat> in fatally, and none of the crew would survive, and uh, and even if it, I'm, I'm sure Reg Reg Barker when this happened to him didn't really know what had happened that that that, that they were being attacked from beneath. No. And it, no, uh, no, no. It, it's and it's part. It's I mean, we talked about Hamburg a lot recently because I because I went there. It's part of the it's part of the revamp that happens to German night fighter. That's right. Um, systems yeah. after after Hamburg is that they think right. We've been doing this wrong with our box system and and the Wildsau and the Tamesau and all that sort of thing. And they and they get into this. They invent this, and it's it's there's kind of no reply to it, is there? That 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 you've just you've got to keep them peeled, and you've got to hope that. Um, you don't get homed in on. It's as simple as that, isn't it? Uh, and the question is, is why weren't these Lancasters, why weren't they protected there? And why are they still um, equipped with um, 0.303 Brownings, you know, which are kind of the next level? Why don't they have 50 calibre? And, and what's really interesting is is that Harris, from the moment that Schrager music comes in, is is repeatedly lobbying the air ministry and going, get my Lancasters better armed. Get them better armed. Get better turrets. Get... Get heavier guns. He, he does it all the time and he gets absolutely nowhere. And it's one of those things where, you know, history suggests that, that Harris is this omnipotent, all-powerful kind of, you know, war leader who whatever he says goes. And it's not, you know, he has superiors above him. He is a, a subordinate. And there are massive checks on his authority. Well, and also... And one of them is his, his inability to procure these well, heavy machine well, guns. And also, he, you know, Harris has fought it, picked his battles... And fought them, and maybe had burned up the kind of goodwill he needed in order to be able to go to someone and say, "I need better kit." Yeah, that's, you know, because that's because cool. his 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 manner is, and there's that fantastic thing where um, he sent he sent some report um, to, uh, to I think to attack a synthetic oil plant, and the notes in the margin is him going, "Says you." And they go, this, if we attack this, it will have a, you know, a magnetic, like a dynamic effect on the German war, war effort. And he just writes, says you. 
across it because he because yeah. he kept his I mean that's one of the interesting things about it is he kept his own counsel so maybe the moments when he needed to actually reach out to people and get help um, uh, uh, weren't going to weren't going to pan out for him and maybe also you know you've got at the air ministry and others making calculations well we, if we spend it on this we won't be able to spend it on that which is after all the endless the endless relentless calculation which is why you know when yep. you look at the you know let's say the peart which we just mentioned now which is the the point of the pit is it's is it's dirt cheap, um, it's man portable, um, uh, and if you're well trained you can use it. But the, the point is it's dirt cheap. A more expensive weapon that might might require you know uh, more spending that you then can't, can't spend on something else. And the, 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 that that those are always you know even though the allies act like they've got a bottomless pit, they don't, and they are making economies and all this. like you've talked about before. You know like you make cheaper uniforms because. Then you can spend yep. the money on something else. Yeah, I've never thought about that. I've never thought that about about Harris before. That's a really, really good point, and and I'm sure there's there's something in that. I mean, it's very interesting. There's a guy who who um, called Roy something or other. He wrote a book about this, about the sort of how outrageous it was that that you know that Lancasters were and heavy bombers were so underarmed, and he wrote a whole entire book on it. But he's and and he gets a bit carried away, it has to be said. But but there are really really fascinating bits in it, and one of them is is this this piece of this this document he finds in the archives at Cranwell somewhere which is the um you know the air college and um it's it dates from I think 1926 yeah. and it's this report into the effectiveness of a Browning machine gun as, as, a, as a as an a weapon in air-to-air fighting and the report says I could not recommend this weapon as an air-to-air in to be used in air-to-air combat under any circumstances it's like firing a pea shooter <laughs> Oh. There you go. There we go. Right. Well, that that I'm afraid is all we've got time for. Um, I'll be putting my pea shooter down until the next time. Um, remember, we'll be live streaming on Thursday night. Open a bottle of wine or a lightly chilled beer and join us for that. I may get. I drank all that whiskey that I was drinking that night, largely out of um, <laughs> uh, technology-induced stress. Details on Twitter <laughs> or on our Patreon site. Fantastic level of correspondence in the past 10, 10 days or so. Let's get this independent company up to being a battalion. Do keep it coming. Lots of ways now to get in touch. There really is no excuse not to. I mean, I suppose in the end, we could be a regiment. Oh, oh, where do people join units. out? Where do people um, join? Uh, uh, well, if they, if they want to, if they go to at We Have Ways Pod on Twitter, the Patreon is there, or yep. they Google We Have Ways of Making You Talk Patreon, and they'll find it. Rather than reading out your clumsy web address, Google it, you fools. Um, we we have uh, <laughs> um, tweet us using the. Where is the recruiting sergeant? <laughs> tweet us using the hashtag We Have Ways. We also have a Twitter handle to follow at We Have Ways Pod. Email us if you're ancient at We Have Ways Podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to wave the old thing because everyone's at home, um, so they're probably using email as well, right? Um, because they've been forced to work from home. So th- I will wave just for this. Just for the length, for the duration, we will waive the old thing. And, of course, you can join the independent company, soon to be a battalion, possibly a regiment. That's on the Patreon website. A huge amount of comment and debate goes on there every day, and it's it's great fun. And um, to, to be amongst the similarly afflicted is a beautiful thing. I think we can agree on that, James. We certainly can. <laughs> Cheerio. See you, see you soon. Bye.